You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. All right. Good morning, Real Life. How you doing? <laughs> it's going to be like that, is it? All right. So I have a little something to drink up here because... Uh, you're like, oh, it's going to be one of those kind of services. No. I just, there's a sickness going around my house. So it's my turn. Uh, so we are in this series on Revelation. And we are in an exciting time today. Because number one, we only have three weeks left before this sermon series is done. Uh, Am I I okay to cheer about that? Because we've hated it all. The other thing is, this is an exciting day because Babylon falls today. Yeah, are we excited for Babylon to fall? Are you sure? Because we're going to wrestle with some stuff today, and it's hard stuff to wrestle with. And I even had somebody propose to me between services that maybe it's better if we're just ignorant of how this connects. And I, and I you know, again, I'm not going to tell you where to land on this stuff. It's hard. This is a difficult conversation. But what we want to make sure of, and I've said this since the beginning of this series, there are people who the book of Revelation is like living on the Palouse. There are people who really love the Palouse. And then there are people who really hate being here. There are people that are like, man, this, when I die to go sit with the feet of God, it's going to look like the Palouse. <laughs> love this place. Love it, love it, love it. And then there are people that are like, hell and the Palouse are synonymous. Like, you either love the Palouse or you hate the Palouse. And so uh, this is the way Revelation is. There are people who love the book of Revelation. They love it. And then there are people who are like, I could never have it in the Bible and be just fine uh, if I never opened the book at all. Now, those people who love the book of Revelation are passionate about it. Those people, uh, there's about 87 different categories that they're really passionate about. And if you disagree with them on any one of the 87, like Armageddon's not a future event, it's now, like it's on, right? And they care. And, And then there are people that are like, just get done. Like, just be done with it. Here's, here's what I want to say. Since the beginning of this series, all that we've ever said, you do not have to agree with me on where we land the plane. You do have to acknowledge that what I'm saying has merit because that much is true. Not because I said it, but because it's, it's right. But that's, uh, <laughs> that's funny. I don't care who you are, that's funny. But what we do have to acknowledge is I don't believe that we can truly understand what it means for us 
until we understand what it meant for the first readers. Would that at least make sense? Like maybe there's future application, the army of the north and cutting your children's heads off in Russia and the one world, new world order, common currency, behind the euro and blah, 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 blah. Maybe. I don't think that that's what they thought about it, though. And, and so what I want to do is wrestle with, if, if we're going to apply it to ourselves in some specific ways, how did they understand it? That's where we're coming from. And today, Babylon falls. Now, we're excited on one hand because Babylon falling, it means that the Christians, our brothers and sisters, are liberated, right? They're vindicated, and we love a good vindication story. But Babylon falling raises some really, really hard questions for you and I. And we're going to talk about that. Because this isn't a sermon about staying on the surface. If we're just going to stay in here and be on the surface, and we can just talk about unicorns and rainbows and butterflies and love each other and move on. If we want to get into the nitty-gritty of what it really means to put our God on display in this world, this is a conversation we're going to have to have. Okay, so you guys ready to get dirty? One person is ready. This is like sitting in an exit row of an airplane. Are you guys ready to get dirty? Because ready or not, the dirt is coming. Here we go. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Now, what we need to understand at this point is this is a really important cultural reference because Babylon being referred to as a she isn't a new idea for the people of first century Rome. Rome was depicted by a statue of the goddess Roma. And Roma embodied the ideals that were Rome. And what we're, if we're not careful, what we can start to believe is that it's about the dirt, the, the politicians, the armies, the, the people, the, the concrete things. Babylon falling is not about space or people. It's about an ideology that asks the world to focus on certain things. And are those things consistent with what God wants us to focus on? So when Babylon falls, it's much bigger than the governments or the land. It's the ideology that drove it to begin with. And that's what we got to talk about. Okay. A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take your part in her sins." lest you share in her plagues. How do we respond to Babylon? Come out from her. Don't try to be a part of it. Be separate from that. 
I mean, Babylon is powerful. It's the arrogance that I am a queen, we're going to read here in just a minute. I, I am a queen. Look at me. I sit on a throne. Look at how powerful. Babylon would have said, we are the most powerful nation in history. And at that point, they would have been right. We have the most powerful military on the globe. Who can stand against us? Totally different than the world we live in. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. A mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. How long does it take for everything to fall apart? Hmm. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Ouch. Now let me frame up our conversation today because what can happen is we can start to go, well, we just need to reject America. Like we're the hashtag un-America. Like that's, we're not hashtag America, we're hashtag un-America. Um, that's not where we're going. That's not where we're going at all. And, and I, I believe that, I, I'm watching a fascinating lecture series right now by a guy by the name of uh, Kenneth Harrell, who's a history teacher at Tulane University, a 24-lecture series called The Fall of the Roman Empire and the Rise of Medieval Christianity, to which I'm sure you guys are all going, I can't wait to get a copy of that. For most people, it's like, uh, but I'm, I'm like, I'm nerding out on it. It is so cool. Well, one of the things that he says that's so interesting about the Christians, and Rome doesn't know what to do with the Christians because uh, what they do is, like when, when Rome pushed on the Jews, when Rome, when Rome tried to attack the Jewish God, because remember in the ancient world, when one nation attacks another nation, it's a war of gods. It's not a war of people, it's a war of gods. Who's God's gonna win? That's what the conversation is when we attack in the ancient world. And I'm always trying to prove and honor that my God is the most powerful God. So why do we always go to war? Because I have to show you that my God's bigger than your God. It's one of the reasons why there's so much violence in the Old Testament, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, it's not the only one, but it's one of them. So the Jews, when Rome attacked the Jews and pushed on their God, the Jews pushed back. They revolted. They went to battle. They did. And Rome respected that. They were like, that makes sense. I don't, I mean, we're going to crush you, but I get it. Like, I get where you're coming from. I'm going to beat you into a pulp, but 
you, you, I got you. We got respect. They didn't know what to do with the Christians because Rome came against the Christian God. They just laid their lives down. They didn't push back. They were again and again and again written of in Roman history as model citizens, keeping the laws to a T. They just wouldn't offer incense to gods, to other gods. That was it. And when pushed on it, because Nero had passed a law, which really wasn't about Nero hating Christians, it was about, which is, this is a whole other conversation that we don't have time for that I'll give to you anyway. But Nero passed a law outlawing Christianity in 64 AD because he needed a scapegoat for the fact that he caught Rome on fire and the Christians became an easy target. He didn't hate them. They just were kind of a nuisance. They were divided. They were kind of a, just messy business. It was messy business, these Christians. And so all he did, he just picked on them. He was just pick, like, randomly, arbitrarily picked him. And we're like, oh, I, so poor us. Like, like, we were the victims. But that's, again, that's something else. He, they were simply obeying the law. They weren't punishing the Christians because they hated the Christians. They were punishing the Christians because it's what the law said to do. And Rome was nothing if not law-abiding. Law and order was the rule of Rome. And so they did it. But they didn't want to do it because they were wonderful citizens, which raises an interesting question because we can wrestle with this. And, and I know lots of really good, loving, wonderful, Jesus-following people who refuse to put their hand over their heart and pledge allegiance to the flag. Why? Not because they're trying to be, you know, screw you America, but because they don't want to pledge allegiance to anything but their God. Okay, on the other side of it is there's people that are like, look, you need to earn and respect the land that you live in and the price that was paid. Put your daggum hand over your heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance. Good, wonderful, Christian, God-fearing people. Most of us are gonna land somewhere in the middle of that. And where do we, where do we stand on it? Like that's a tension of what does it mean for us to flee Babylon because that's our call. It's not to live in Babylon and embrace it. It's to flee from it. What does that actually look like? And that's a tension. Um, there's a, I, I want to read a couple of passages for you. This is, remember, we always want to take text to context. Where is John getting his stuff? Where is he pulling from? So I want to show you a couple of things, a couple of passages. Isaiah 48. It says, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth. So what are we supposed to do with Babylon? Leave it. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And this is Jeremiah 50, another one. Flee from the midst of Babylon. So what does the prophet Jeremiah tell us to do? We gotta get away from it and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock. I'll let you apply that as you see fit. For behold, I am stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage. This is important. 
what he says here is, even though you think you got away with beating up my people, though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and nay like stallions, your mother shall be utterly shamed. I think it's funny that he says heifers and then utterly shamed. I think that's funny. And she who bore you shall be disgraced. It was an utter catastrophe of a joke, apparently. Um, Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be an utter, there it is again, desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. Not only is Jeremiah the king of puns, but he's also calling us to not embrace Babylon. Now, there's a lot more in this passage, but I really want to stand in this tension, and I'm just going to present the tension to you. You, you don't have to, I'm not going to give you any places to stand today which I know is frustrating for some people. What I'm gonna say is, here's the tension of the world that we live in and we've got to understand how to live in it well. Stand where you will, but we've gotta learn to live in this tension and we can't pretend it's not there and we can't be so trite as to assume that a simple platitude will fix it. I would suggest that the rest of Revelation 18 is about an unfolding of the devastation that comes because people built their lives on the power of Babylon. The merchants, it's in your notes, you can read it later. The merchants crying because they lost all their stuff. People that had built their worlds around uh, valuing the fact that Babylon was always gonna be there because it had always been there in their life. And then all of a sudden it falls apart because their lives were not built on principles that are sustainable. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jeremiah 51 where um, it was really a good passage. Uh, Jeremiah is looking out over Babylon and he's like, this is going to fall. And the reason it's going to fall is because rulers are going to come against rulers. That's how empire falls. Because it's wired to function that way. In an empire, we're always trying to jockey for position and status and trying to build our own worlds and our own comfort and our own uh, pile of money that we can sit on top, whatever, whatever. The money's not the evil part. The evil part is that we're building our world on greed and the, the ideology that drives the world, the empire, is bad. Does that make sense? That's what we've got to come against. That's the thing that we've got to fight against. It's not the, and I'm running out of time. I told him to give me a timer because this can get long and now I'm feeling pressure. I feel pressured. Feeling insecure and pressured. Uh, Now, what we have to wrestle with is this. Is it then the government's responsibility to change? And I'm going to tell you, no, because God's people are called to be God's people regardless of the governmental system that they sit under. 
It's not the government's job to do the Christian's thing. It's the Christian's job to do the Christian's thing. It's your job and my job. It's our job to be able to live this tension out well. And the only thing that I can tell you about how to actually do it is we got to be together. Like we got to be having conversations about this together because I can't figure it out on my own. I'm not made to do that. I'll wind up compromising somewhere as a community. And it's one of the reasons why we do small groups. And if you're not in one, you need to get in one. Just saying. One of the reasons why we do small groups is because we need to talk about this tension. Like, like for example, this. Like, we don't believe that slavery exists in the world anymore. And yet, we buy clothes that were made in sweatshops. Like, that's true. We have electronics that are built by materials that were, built, were brought out of the ground by slaves. It's true. And is it okay? And I don't know, because the truth is, you can buy stuff, and you're like, well, it was made in a good old USA. Right, but it was made from parts that were sent by places in other parts of the world that was developed by slaves. Like, there's no escaping it. So what do we do with that? What do we do with sex trafficking. This is why we did Freedom Sunday a few weeks ago. Like, we've got to at least start opening the conversation. And ignorance isn't the answer. Pretending like, well, I can't see with my own eyes, so it's not a problem. That's not the answer. The solution seems overwhelming. Like, how in the world are we ever going to stop sweatshops in China from using children to build T-shirts? How are we going to, I don't know, but the solution won't come from pretending that it doesn't exist. Like, we got to talk about that. And this is one of those things, that, let me say this to you college students, you millennials get a bad rap. And some of it you've earned. You, participation trophy loving, no, I'm just messing with you, I'm messing with you. This is one of the things that I think the millennials have gotten Right? that we got to care about global issues. We've got to care, and especially as the most powerful nation, like we should be leading the charge in that, but it's not the government's job. It's yours and my job because we believe that we serve a God who wants the world to function a certain way. I don't know what the answer is. I don't, and I don't, like you don't have to, stand in one particular place. And I, I, I think that this tension is one of those things that like we should be visiting regularly because we get into a place where we're like, I'm good. I've, I've, I'm, I'm in balance right now. And then things change. Life changes. Money changes. You know, I'm, I'm generous here, but then uh, my parents move in with me and that changes my financial position. What does that mean? You, like, this is an ongoing conversation that we're always going to have to be wrestling with. It's not a destination to get to. It's a tension that we live in. God's call is to leave Babylon. And the problem with this book, and one of the reasons why we have a really hard time applying it in our life, is that too many times we find ourselves on the wrong side of Babylon. We like empire. We like power, and we aspire to it. And we try to leverage the blessing of God to get there. 
And I would suggest that Revelation is inviting us to a different kind of conversation. Now, I'll tell you what it isn't. This isn't a stick your head in the sand, screw you, I don't care what you have to say kind of a, that's not the answer. The other answer isn't sell everything you have, take a vow of poverty, move into a cave in the mountains. Right? It isn't all things physical are evil. That, like, the ascetic monk movement, that's how they responded to this question. They separated themselves and they started to beat themselves with whips and do all kinds of crazy things in order to beat the flesh into submission because any desire of the flesh was evil. No, some desires of the flesh are actually really good and holy and right. It's the overextension of those things that's a problem. Right? Like we, we have all kinds of like all or nothing conversations in this. And it's not that. It's finding a groove where we can say we are putting God on display well. And we're rejecting the ideology that drives empire. Now, how do we get there? How do we know that we're living in that zone? We've got to be talking to one another about it. We've got to be having community conversations about it. We have to. And nobody wants to talk about it because the truth is, here's, here's, this is the truth. You tell me if I'm wrong. If you hit the lottery tomorrow, let's, let's say you didn't hit the lottery because you guys are Christians, you don't play the lottery. <laughs> That's funny. Let's say that tomorrow somebody dumped a million dollar check on you. Okay, would you take it? It's legit money. Nobody stole it. It's all good. Would you take the money? Of course you would. Now, let's say you had to pay 45% tax on it. Would you be mad? Of course you would. You would lose it, completely lose the fact that you just got $550,000 that you didn't work for. You'd be mad that you had to pay $450,000 to the stinking government, right? Like, I, there's a better conversation, and, I, and what I want to do is work towards being divorced of greed in the process. Because it's not about, greed destroys all God's work. It's not about personal preservation. It's about us laying our lives down and being a part of his agenda. Because I don't care what your agenda is. If it's not God's agenda, he has no obligation to bless it. God only blesses his agenda. So we need to be a part of that. Right? And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table which is a great moment of recognition of what it means to lay down your own agenda. Now, if you're new with us today, we have what's called an open table. And what that means is anybody who is willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in communion with us. But we want you to hold those elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. Now, while they're passing that out, I want to work through a few implications. Implication simply means this. These are things that as we work through this sermon that we as the sermon team thought were particularly important. And you may have other places that you were like, well, what about this idea? That I, Yes, all those things are valid too. These are just things that stuck out to us as we started to work through it, okay? Implication number one, God does not work for us. He is not motivated by our agenda. He is not a tool for our use. Can anybody give me an amen on that? Thank you. This is a struggle for me. 
Because I've always, I was raised in a church ideology that was like, if you're righteous, if you're moral enough, that God will bless you and give you what you want. Now, God will bless you, but he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, right? Like God blesses everybody because he blesses them, not because they lived a certain way. This is the conversation in Romans. Acts that lead to death lead to death. Acts that lead to life lead to life. That's just true, regardless of whether or not you call it God's blessing. But what happens is we want to obligate God to our agenda. So we live right, we pray extra hard, maybe even fast and pray so that we can get what we want. But if God can be coerced or incantated, you like that word? We can speak some kind of an incantation and obligate God to pull off our agenda, then who's God? Me. Why? Because I can control him to give him, to get him to do what I want. Guess what? I'm not God. I mean, I'm awesome. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care who you are. It's funny. But I'm not God. And neither are you. God is God. And he doesn't exist to serve our agenda. We exist to serve his Next implication. We have a tendency to believe that God's on our side, and so our imperial methods are acceptable. This is false. I love Joshua 7. I'm convicted by Joshua 7 every time I read it. In Joshua 7, Joshua is getting ready to take the children of Israel into the promised land, and they're going to go conquer everybody. And they're on the, on the opposite side of the Jordan River, and at night, an angel comes to Joshua with his sword drawn. And Joshua says to him, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Now, what do we want the angel to say? You're God's people. You're special. You, look at you. Oh, boo, boo, boo. Like we want him to grab Joshua's cheek and let us love you. Right? That's what we want. Some version of you're more awesomer than everyone else. That's what we want. Joshua says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the angel says, neither. But as the commander of the Lord's army, I came to give you a message. That's powerful and scary because it ain't about you. And until we understand that, we will never be able to be a part of God's agenda. We'll always be just a little bit sad when Babylon falls. Next implication. We have a tendency to believe that if we do what God wants, God will bless us. This is false. There are people who live righteously, and it works out really well for them. There are people who live righteously, and it works out really poor for them. Read Hebrews 11. It doesn't change our call to live righteous. Now, does God bless you if you live righteously? The answer is yes. You know, you guys are like, I don't know how I should answer that right now. Yeah, he does. He does. Does God bless you when you live unrighteously? 
Yeah, he does. You know why? Because he's stinking awesome. You should totally follow him. Last implication. What we believe doesn't matter unless it's rooted in what God says and does. We are his tools, his vessels, and his partner, not the other way around. And communion calls us to that truth. Now, we take communion all together as a family, as a church family. And the reason we do is because each week we get challenged with these like pieces of what it means to walk out our Christian faith and culture. And it's hard. This is a sign that we show everybody. Look, I heard what was said. And I got to be honest with you, some of it I liked, some of it I didn't like. I'm really struggling with a few things here. Maybe this, maybe that, whatever. But I've considered what it still means to be a part of the covenant. And I want to tell all of you guys, I'm still in. That's what communion is. And so when we take communion, we have to understand that this is bigger than just me remembering the Lord. This is me telling you that I choose to live my life in a certain way. So if you don't want to do that, it might be good for you to not take communion today. This is a reminder that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is given for you, so whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup, and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you, so whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, I am convicted by the ways that I find the roots of Babylon in my own heart. And Lord, I want to ask that you would give each of us the courage to mine out those areas in our soul that are devoted to things other than your agenda. Lord, thank you for the testimony of those who are willing to lay it all down. Thank you that we have their story to tell as an inspiration to us. Help us to be able to live in that truth well. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.